0: This week I was thinking over some of the different churches that I've been in in just the last few weeks. I've been uh, with or in churches that are Pentecostal, those that are fundamental, those that are uh, high, more high church, Episcopal. Um, I have uh, I have preached in so many different churches. I've preached in a farm church in Michigan, in a Southern Comfort Church in South Carolina. When you're not doing well, they say, bless his heart. I've preached in a Caribbean church in Washington, DC. There was about 500 there. My wife and I were the only Caucasians in the room. Uh, The choir met in the front lawn. There wasn't room in the church until it was time for the choir. Then they opened the door, (laughs) holy cow. About 80 voices came and took the place over. I've preached uh, in a Salvation Army church on Good Friday. I've preached in a Christian Reformed church where they do everything liturgically. In a Pentecostal church where they all prayed in tongues just before I had to preach in English. (laughs) I preached in the hip-hop church in Grand Rapids, uh, where if you're doing okay, they come rushing down the middle aisle, shaking their fists at you. <laughs> I thought, we don't do that in college church. If we did that in college church, there's about six or eight people in the room on any given service that would jump up and intervene, shall we say. <laughs> oh, as I was thinking over all of these different churches that I've been in, I was just I was so grateful for the the rich diversity that is in the body of Christ. You know, sometimes people uh, say, um, if you all believe the same stuff, how come you have so many different expressions? And the reason, I think, is because each church is trying to find a way to be faithful to the word of God and faithful to their culture. So what we did was we created a logo looks like this. And on your way out, you can pick up a sticker not very large, put it in your Bible or on your mirror somewhere in your life and all that does is just remind you of our commitment to be the body of Christ. What it symbolizes is that we do come from different directions, all different colors and backgrounds and experiences and while there is no hard circumference to the church, there is a solid core. There's a place in the middle where all people and things intersect and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. So we've talked about what it means to be a cross-shaped community. And on your way out, as I say, you may pick that up and bring it with you. The thing to remember is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is like yeast. It isn't a bread pan, it's the yeast. When yeast goes into the dough, it dissolves itself and emits life. And as it reproduces, it causes the dough to rise. It's the bread pan that shapes the bread, not the yeast. The yeast brings life. The bread pan creates the form. The gospel is not the bread pan. It is the yeast. In every culture where it goes, it emits life. It causes that culture to rise, to become capable of what it could become. But it leaves to other forces the right to determine the shape that that culture will take. One of the peculiar distinctives of the Christian faith is that it does not need a culture, a certain culture, to be a certain way in order to rise. Christianity's different. It doesn't try to make everyone the same. It just causes life and lets people become what God has made them, and that looks different. Whenever we confuse the gospel with the expression of the gospel, the yeast with the bread pan, we get in trouble. The older you get, the more you will be tempted to believe that your way of expressing the gospel is the gospel. But in reality, the gospel is usually something much smaller than your expression of it. It hides. So be careful about confusing expressions with the core. This is especially important in college churches. (laughs) We have five generations in the room right now. I don't know of many other churches with such a diverse audience in one service. So it's essential that we focus on the core and not just the form of it. So what's at the core? The gospel, we said, is not good advice. It's good news. The gospel is not some event that happened in the past. It's something that's happening right now in real time. So the gospel is not simply a series of claims. It's also a campaign that God unleashed into the world subversively a couple thousand years ago. That is to say that the gospel is not primarily a religious event that belongs in churches. The gospel is a secular event that belongs in every domain across the world. Every square inch of the planet is under the lordship of Jesus Christ whether it knows it or not. So the gospel is not simply attached to an individual, Jesus Christ. It is also attached to a community which is the body of Jesus Christ. It is not therefore simply to be believed on. It is to be practiced and lived out in our daily life. And as we do, we begin to practice today the way things will be in the end. When the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he reigns forever and ever, we start living in that reality now. And then someday, when God writes large what churches are doing all over the globe, The gospel of God will change the world. That's good preaching, Steve. That's good. That's good. (laughs) We've tried to articulate what some of these strands of the gospel are. Let me summarize as best I can. A cross-shaped community is a community that makes peace with God and with each other. We live in a world of hostility and violence and separation. It is a world of trenches and wars and walls. And the greatest wall said Martin Luther King Jr., runs through the center of every human heart. It is not a wall between nations or parts of a city. It is a wall that runs down the center of every human heart that grabs one's distinctives and makes one more special than somebody else. But the gospel is that in Christ... God has torn down the wall of hostility that divides us. He has made the two one. He has reconciled in himself one new person out of the two, thus proclaiming peace to you who were far off and peace to you who were near. In Christ, there is a new humanity. And so the living gospel is that he has given us this ministry of reconciliation. So from this day forward... We regard no one from a worldly point of view. We used to do this. We used to look at people according to the color of their skin, according to their income, according to their education, or their denomination, or their nationality. That's how we used to look at people. But we no longer look at people this way. Because we know that if a person is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away, and the new has come. And God has given us this ministry of reconciliation. Let the church say amen. In the gospel, we have the answer to broken promises. Because we are a people who keep our promises. This is a society where promises are made by people in order to get what they want. And as soon as they change their mind, they break their promises. And as a result of this, the present generation, I mean people in this room that are 30 years old and under, have stopped making promises because they see how shallow and how fragile promises can be. But this is the gospel of Jesus Christ that God has made a covenant with us, not on the basis of who we are, but on the basis of who he is. It is not because we were the best. In fact, every one of you were the least in spite of what your parents told you. But in Christ... He has elevated you and made you more than this world will ever make you. And this is a God who not only makes his promises, he keeps his promises. The people in this world, their love will wane. Their strength will fail. They will make promises and wear them out like a garment. But the promises that God makes are steadfast fast. They will never change. Yesterday, today, and forever. The promises of God are true. Let the church say amen. Amen. So the living gospel is that we can make promises because he made promises to us. We can vow things for what is in us, not for the performance in the other person. The living gospel is that we can commit ourselves to people and to causes because Christ is committed to us. And so every promise we make is in the shadow of a covenant that he has made with us. Let the church say amen. We're just getting started. In the gospel, we learn that we make room. This is a culture of prejudice and partitions and peculiarities, privatization. Minorities try to get into the circle and majorities congregate themselves into an inner ring. Never have I seen our nation more conscious of diversity, never have we been more afraid of it. We have focused so much on diversity that we have forgotten unity. Each person grabbing their own peculiarity and elevating it above others in the room. But in the gospel of Jesus Christ, God makes room for us at the table. He opens the Godhead and through the church allows the least of these, and that's who we are, to sit at the table of God. So we can draw near with full assurance and confidence of faith. Because he has made us one just as he is one. The same love that the father has for the son he has given to us until we are all one in Jesus Christ. And so the living gospel is that we accept one another just as in Christ God accepted us we forgive one another just as in Christ God forgave us we bear with the failings of the weak we tolerate those who are struggling this is the gospel as it is expressed in the body of Jesus Christ Let the church say amen. Last, we carry crosses. This is a world that is rich in generosity. This is a nation that gives more money to the struggling world than any nation on the planet. And we do this with all kinds of nations. We are long in charity. Short in empathy. We pray, support, click here, advise, fix, and then disengage. This is not who we are. This is not the church of Jesus Christ. The living gospel is, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He who was rich became poor so that you all might become rich in righteousness through God. That is the gospel. And so the living gospel is that we carry one another's burdens. We bear with people who struggle. We get under crosses. We don't avoid them. When one of ours is insulted, we bear their insults. When they are fallen, we pick them up. And when they are overwhelmed, we help them carry their burdens. That's the body of Jesus Christ. Let the church say, amen. Thank you. Well, that's the intro. I got 10 minutes to whip the rest of this thing. Open your Bibles and look at Matthew chapter 6. This last thing that the church is is hope. Matthew chapter 6. The body of Christ shares hope. People with hope trust. People who have hope trust in God. People without hope trust in something else. Four times in this passage, look at the Bible and see if I'm right. In verse 25, verse 27, verse 28, and verse 31, four times he tells us, do not worry. Oh, like you, I read this and shook my head. I think I was born to worry tells me in verse 27, I shouldn't worry because it doesn't do any good. (laughs) Tells me in verse 30, I shouldn't worry because the Father knows what I need. And he'll take care of it. He tells me in verse 31 or 32 that I shouldn't worry because pagans worry, Steve. And you are not a pagan. And he tells me in verse 34, I shouldn't worry because, well, every day has enough trouble of its own. But I worry. I worry because while I know the passage, I misread the passage. I thought the passage was an imperative. I thought what the passage was saying is, do not worry. As if Jesus was telling me to stop doing something that seems to me irresistible. I'm beginning to think that what Jesus is doing here is not, prohibiting worry. He is inviting us into trust. He's not saying, you worry, stop it. That's your mother says that. He's saying, you don't need to worry. You can stop. So he's not so much calling for an end of something as he is opening the door to something brand new. It's an invitation, not a prohibition. My tendency is to worry about everything. Because I figure the more I worry, the harder I work, and the harder I work, the more details I cover. And when things break down, they break down in the details. So if you pay attention to the details, you'll cover all the bases you need not worry. And then other people happen. (laughs) Stuff happens. So if I do not make an intentional effort to trust, I will worry. I'll call it something else. I'll say, I'm just being prepared. I'm just handling my business. I'm doing my job. But really, what it is, is worry. Trust and worry cannot occupy the same heart at the same time. You can trust for some things, and worry about others. But you cannot trust at the same time and in the same place where you worry. So the degree to which I trust is the degree to which I do not worry. And the degree to which I worry is the degree to which I cannot trust. They're on opposite sides of the spectrum. But because it is a spectrum most of us find a place right in the middle where we can both worry and trust. I worry about all this, and then when I can't do anything else, I will begin to trust. But people, look at the text. The text does not tell us to trust in things we can't handle. What he says is, you trust in daily provisions. The stuff that you were taught in America, you must get for yourself. That's the stuff you must learn to trust for. Stuff that you're used to worrying about. You must learn the reflex of trust. How you do that? To the Christian there is only one reason to trust. And this is that God has made promises. And because God has made a promise, you can put both feet on what God says. Let me say that differently. As a Christian you have Nothing to hope for. You can wish, but you cannot hope until God utters a promise. And the moment He says it, it's done. Hope is an Israelite boy sitting near a fire in the desert. After he's had the last meal of the day, there is no fridge and there's no food for tomorrow. But he remembers hearing a promise that every morning there would be manna on the desert floor. And even though he cannot see it, he has no guarantee that it will in fact appear tomorrow. He believes in what he was told. So to a Christian, hope is never wishful thinking. Hope is a done deal, even though it hasn't happened yet. Because hope is never an extrapolation of information that we have in front of us, projecting it onto the future. To a Christian, hope is always adventus said jürgen moltmann it is always something from the outside something that you couldn't see coming speaking into your existence and it changes everything and the moment god says it you trust it because it was god who says it and when you trust it you have hope So, if you find yourself struggling on the continuum between worry and trust, the secret is not to find an optimist who will just fill you with wishful thinking. The secret is to go back to the Word of God and find promises and let God be true, and everyone else a liar. Two people find this hard to believe. You and somebody else. (laughs) Some of you are raised, as I was, in a narrative called grit. Grit says hard work, stamina of character. Discipline, wise decisions, foresee the future, make decisions now because the future is nothing more than the logical consequence of decisions that you make in the present day. So go get an education, Steve, and make wise decisions and work hard. And if someone else is working, you work a little bit harder so you can overcome them. Persevere. Hang in there. Develop character. Good things come to people who work and live like this. It's good old-fashioned grit. And the problem with it is, it is just true enough to suck you in. So you're in a college church. Baby, that is pure grit. You're not in college, some of you. For a social experiment. Well, some of you are, but most of you for a social experiment. Uh uh-uh. uh. You're in school because you know if you get a degree and you do well, it looks better on a resume and every chance thereafter of getting a good paying job is much higher. And if you work hard in that good-paying job, you'll get a recommendation, and that'll be the second job. And my goodness, your future will just open right up to you. The problem is other people. You can't control what other people are going to do. And just because it hasn't happened to you... It can happen. First it was Columbine. Then it was Sandy Hook. Then it was Virginia Tech. Now it's a lunatic in Las Vegas. Only we're hearing maybe he wasn't a lunatic. Maybe he was a normal person. Who woke up in a normal state of mind. And then for some unpredictable reason, he went off. People in a grit mentality are always looking for explanations that make sense. Because to understand it is to be able to prevent it. But we're learning that life is full of surprises. Other people can make decisions that we can't stop in all of the preparation in the world and then somebody blows it. So we worry. The other belief system is chance. If the temptation of people who believe in grit is to try and control everything, then the temptation of people who believe in chance is to despair. It's to just say, man, you're right. Things happen, and sometimes they happen to you. First it was Hurricane Harvey, then it was Hurricane Irma, and then it was Hurricane Nate, and then it's wildfires in Southern California. I mean, I, did, I didn't cause any of these things, but they happened. I mean, I didn't buy a house too big, but the stock market crashed in two thousand seven and eight, and I lost a bunch of money. I didn't do that. I didn't deserve that. But it still happened. And so you say, that's just sort of the way it is. You just sort of ricochet off of one event and another and try to land on your feet. You hear it? It's so hard for people who believe in grit to hear this word from Jesus that says, don't worry, because you know at the end of all your preparation, something still go wrong. The center of gravity has been put on yourself and you bear all the responsibility for your success. And some of you who have had a lifetime of one bad experience after another, it's hard for you to hear the gospel because you have placed the center of gravity on to somebody else. It's always what somebody else or the natural forces are gonna do, and that can wreck my life. And what I'm telling you this morning is that Jesus has offered us a wonderful gospel. And it is this Your Father knows what you have need of before you even ask, before you even say it. Your Father has a way of providing all of your needs. And so, whatever you have, what the Father provides is what you need. Oh, this is a hard word to hear. Hard word to hear in an over-ambitious culture like ours who believe what God provides is the baseline and then we just build on it. And what Jesus said is, "No, no, He gives you everything that you need. You can trust him. You can trust him. Church, you can trust him. You can't trust your effort, ambition, education, perseverance, discipline and hard work. It'll take you so far. And then it stops. I remember I was gonna speak for the first time some years ago in South Carolina to college students. I'd never spoken to college students before. (laughs) I got up in the morning, I put my notes in front of me, I'd prepared every word, I'd memorized the main transitions, I'd counted the illustrations, I worked them out in my mind. And then I got in the car and made that lonely drive up the hill toward the chapel, which seemed to me like the white throne judgment. And I got a phone call. Is my dad? My dad said, Are you scared? I said, nah, nah. Nah. He said, Well, I I thought maybe you might be. And so I called. I said, No, no, I'm not scared. Terrified? Yes. Not scared. Then he said, Well, I just want you to know this morning when I got up, I prayed for you, and you cannot fail. (laughs) I thought, It is not that easy work and sweat and frustration and worry and fret and you pray. But do you hear what he's saying? Steve, prepare. Work hard. You just can't trust your preparation. It won't go all the way. It won't cover everything that you need done in the next hour. So, Steve, what you're about to do is step into, wait for it, wait for it. Not a deadline. This is an opportunity. If you worry, every one of your opportunities will feel like deadlines. You will fear that there is no margin of error. And so you will work your game for as far as it'll take you. But if you trust, you can step in to that deadline and just move about with freedom. Oh man, I can't tell you how liberating it is to be free from the worry of the outcome. Say that in slow motion. How liberating to be free from the worry of the outcome. It is to live in emancipation inside of my abilities, moving about as I want in the freedom of the Holy Spirit. It is not a stinking performance. 800 pounds, gone. You want that? You want it? You will have to learn to trust. (laughs) Oh, the Lord has given us so many, many promises. So many promises. This morning I said uh, we celebrate the body of Jesus Christ and boy do we ever, man. In a couple minutes I'm gonna baptize two people out here. You'll see it on screen. I know in a generation like this, the Church of Jesus Christ is not uh, maybe everything to you that it does seem to me. My appreciation for the body of Christ has grown over years. I know that the Church of Christ, for some of you, has serious limitations and serious flaws. I'll tell you, we have no money, we have no power. We are run by volunteers and by amateurs. We are reinvented every new generation. Somebody else has an idea. We have been silent when we should have prophesied. And we have been militant when we should have stood silent. The church has all kinds of warts and flaws and limitations. But listen to me. The church is also the body of Christ. Mm. The church is his bride and your mother. It is miracle and mystery. Word and spirit, human and divine, local, universal. We gather under trees, in huts, or in houses. We gather in black boxes, in storefronts, in gymnasiums, in giant cathedrals. But wherever the church gathers, it gathers around the of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hebrew says it is the joyful assembly of the firstborn. That's the church of Jesus Christ.